Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. I will note that on your insert, there's an outline, and I have a few other passages that I will read on our way to reading Ephesians 6.17. This is the passage that we have arrived at where we will be focusing on the next piece of armor, the fifth piece of armor in the armament of Christ given to us in Ephesians 6. Indeed, we have Christ's battle-proven, battle-victorious armor that is ours in Him, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, gospel shoes. Just last week, we learned of the shield of faith. Now we come to the helmet of salvation. And this, like other items listed here by Paul, uh, are not novel metaphors in Scripture. Paul uses them in other places, and the Bible authors across the Bible use these same kinds of metaphors. So here as I read God's holy word, I'll start with Isaiah, I'll move to a, a First Thessalonians 5, and then I'll finish the reading with the three verses surrounding the passage we are studying today, Ephesians 6 verse 17. Again, this is God's inspired, holy, and authoritative word, Isaiah 59. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. First Thessalonians 5 verse 8. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Ephesians 6, 14 through 17. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we have benefited greatly considering the armor of Christ that we now wear. I pray, O oh Lord, that our understanding of salvation would be deepened all aspects of salvation. Indeed, the fullness of salvation as we study this portion of Scripture and this topic in particular. Guide us by your Spirit that we might understand and apply your Word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When my boys were young and I would ready them for soccer practices and games, especially when they were very small, I would tell them to get their shoes, socks, and shin pads on. Of course, when they were really young, what that really meant was me getting their shoes, their socks, and their shin pads on them. Uh, that meant them standing in front of me, squiggling and worm, uh, worming around, not wanting me to put them on, but I'd put on the socks, tie down the shoes, have to tie them again because they weren't tied enough, tight enough, and then put the shin pads in so they would hold their place. Make no mistake, when we read, put on the armor of God, take up the whole armor of God, based on everything we have read about the sovereign grace of God and our salvation, we know what it means. He's putting it on us. He has put it on us through five chapters. 
explaining what he has done for us in Christ, even the gift of faith. And now we come to the culmination of this great epistle, and he says, put on the whole armor of God. Take up the whole armor of God. This is the battle-tested armor of Jesus. It's Jesus' armor given to us to wear. We are in union with Christ, and we recognize all of these features, all of these benefits. They come from Christ, and he's using this metaphor so we can gather what it might look like, the whole armor of God. Take the helmet of salvation. Verse 17, this is where we have arrived. The fifth piece of armor. In its function, a helmet suggests it to be of utmost importance because we know that a helmet protects the head. In the helmet of the Roman soldier, the enlisted soldier would be a heavy rawhide leather with metal plating on it. And it would have sides that covered the cheeks and the face meeting up right near the mouth and just leaving the nose in the mouth so you could breathe. It would have a leather uh, tail that went off the back of the helmet over the neck, guarding from blows that might come from behind. Also, if you moved up in rank, you got an even better helmet, one that was made of iron or bronze, likewise covering the cheeks and the face, covering the back of the neck as well, protecting the head. How important is this piece of armor? A head or the head of a person symbolizes the whole of that person. You think when someone is blessed, we put our hand on their head. It symbolizes the whole person by blessing the head. The head represents our cognitive abilities to reason, to remember, to look ahead to. Our head has to do with our accumulated knowledge that we retain therein, our mindset, our perspective. When someone starts acting out of emotions or just uh, or they act passionately, out of control, we may grab them and say, Get your head in this. You've got to get your head right. That's what we'll say to them. Because the head represents so much as it relates to what we know, what we believe, what we are convinced of, what is certain to us. So take the helmet of salvation. Salvation must be the thing that is so important to safeguard. Related to the Christian faith, as we think of the helmet of salvation, Our head represents the knowledge of the truth about God and Christ. Our head represents the truth of the gospel of Christ. Take the helmet of salvation. Our head represents the knowledge of this salvation, the fullness of this salvation, the certainty of this salvation, and the hope of the final salvation yet to come, all represented by our head. Take the helmet of salvation. Now, I know that people will use the term, um, I'm saved. And that's referring to salvation. Now, as one who did not come from uh, this evangelical tradition, you might say, I had never heard that phrase used in my circles and thought it a little bit strange. Then I realized the Scripture uses this terminology, that we be saved or experience salvation. But I remember those who said it mostly meant they're just saved from hell, which is a great thing for sure. But there's far more involved with salvation in the Bible, much more than just this simple fact of our being saved from hell. That's enough, but there's much more, much more. Take the helmet of salvation. It has to do with the certainty about what is settled in Christ and what is coming still, the knowledge of salvation. This shapes the way that we live our days. The helmet of salvation is based, it's basic and it's level. We have to know it to be able to navigate this life. 
we are able to operate on the basis of knowing what is sure. We just sang in this last hymn, when faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure and Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. The certainty of our salvation that's still to come gives us a basis for living our days today. When we lose hope, we lose sight and our future becomes blurry. When we have hope, when we know what's true, we have clarity and we have purpose. Take the helmet of salvation. Very basically, the helmet of salvation concerns the assurance, being sure of our salvation, and the confidence that that brings for the battle we face in this life. Now, assurance of salvation doesn't only mean that we are certain of our current state of salvation. I'm saved from hell. I'm talking about the fullness of salvation now. This is in Paul's view. Think of the tenses of salvation, saved in the past, in the present, and into the future. Think also of the benefits of salvation, all that is ours because of what has been done for us and God saving us. First, let's think of the tenses of our salvation, our past salvation. This refers to being saved the moment we believed in Christ. When God gave you faith to trust Jesus' sacrifice for you, you were saved. And for hopefully for all of you, that was in the past. You came to trust in him and you were saved. Then there's our present salvation. Once we've been saved, God continues to keep us saved. He works out our salvation in us, here and now, our present salvation, being saved. And then there is our future salvation that we look forward to, the Christian hope, final redemption and glory to come, our future salvation. Think of our past salvation as our justification before God. We are made just, we are made right before God because of Christ's work in our place. We were justified. That's our past salvation. Then our present salvation. We call this our sanctification. Sanctified to make more and more holy over the course of our life. Now I know it doesn't feel that way because God slowly reveals to you the depths of your sins. But as he does that, we cling to Christ all the, all the more closely and we do grow and God gives us victories where we didn't have them before. They're not complete in this life but he's working to mature us, to die more and more to sin and live more and more unto Christ. This is God's work of sanctification. This is his present keeping us, saving us. Our future salvation. This is what we refer to as glorification, where we share in the glory of the salvation purchased for us by Christ. When Jesus is glorified, we're united to him and we receive a sense of that glory. We're finally made perfect and whole in God's presence. That's future salvation. Take the helmet of salvation, the tenses of salvation. Past, Ephesians 1 told us, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's your past salvation. Your present salvation, Paul wrote in, in the first Epistle to the Corinthians. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It never loses its potency to us when we hear the gospel because we are being saved. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are made fresh again in recognition of the effective work of Christ for us. We're saved. We're being saved. Second Corinthians, Paul wrote, for we are the aroma of Christ 
to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Our ongoing salvation that God is working out, that is your present salvation. And then there is your future salvation in Ephesians 4. We do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, the day still to come when final redemption is realized. In Romans 13, Paul wrote that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Final salvation still comes. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul uses the exact same metaphor of the helmet, but listen to the word he puts in when he says it to the, the, to the Thessalonians. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus. Look ahead to what is surely coming, your future salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. Those are the tenses of salvation. But I want to focus our attention now on another feature of the fullness of salvation. The benefits that we have from God's salvation. There's the forgiveness of sins. But there's not just the forgiveness of sins. There's also the deliverance of Satan from Satan's bondage that we have in the, here in the now. But there's also this reality of our being adopted as sons and daughters of God. Our adoption in Christ. And also the hope of final salvation that we look forward to in the future. These are all benefits that we receive in salvation. So take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation has to do first with our knowledge of the forgiveness of our sins. Now, the devil will fling arrows at you, and one of the favorite arrows he flings at you is doubt and worry over the reality of your salvation with God. This is a favorite tactic of the, of the evil one, to accuse you of not being saved or that you're not savable. You're beyond God's forgiveness. These are the kinds of arrows he throws. And Paul says, take the helmet of salvation so we can respond or we can block those darts. In Romans chapter 5, this is where we find the promise so clear, this promise of the forgiveness of sins. In Romans 5 verse 6, while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So salvation related to the forgiveness of our sins, means we're saved from the justified wrath of God. He has every reason to be angry with us, but because Jesus has interceded and takes the wrath of God, our sins are forgiven, and God is no longer angry with you. This is a benefit of your salvation. So when the devil tells you you're not savable, Jesus died for you. He has done this work for you. You are saved. And so the devil's lies fall as they hit the helmet of salvation. The forgiveness of sins means being saved from this wrath of God. In Romans 5, verse 10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. God is justified to be angry with us for sure, but we're saved from this because of Christ. 
We are saved from what our sin should bring us because of Jesus. You know, David understood the helmet of salvation, looking ahead to the promise that God gave of Messiah to die for his sins. He says in Psalm 32, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. This is key. This is crucial to all of us here hearing this. We should be able to confess our sins to God, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive. We can't hide sins from him. If you have the sense of hiding, uh, this is a, a sign that we don't know him. We lay bare our lives. And David said, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Forgiveness of sins. This is a benefit of salvation. Isaiah, who wrote 300 years before David, who wrote 1,000 years before Christ in the Apostles. Isaiah said, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Paul constantly, regularly, consistently repeated the benefit of salvation, God's salvation, which is the forgiveness of our sins. In the opening words of Ephesians, in him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. He wrote to the Colossians, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters, take the helmet of salvation. This means knowing the forgiveness of our sins and that they've been, that's, this has been accomplished by Christ. But it means something else also. It means also knowing that we have been delivered from Satan's bondage. In our natural state, we are bonded to Satan. We are his slaves. Before Christ, Satan is our master. He rules our flesh, and we do whatever he wants us to do and whatever it wants us to do. After Christ, we're slaves to God. But this side of glory, we still struggle against that. That old nature creeps up. But we now have power to fight against it where we didn't before. This is the, the tale of the Christian life, the struggle against sin. But the struggle itself is a sign that God's working in you because you can now say no to things you could not say no to before. Take the helmet of salvation. This means knowing our deliverance from Satan's bondage. The best exposition of this truth comes in Romans chapter 6. Paul lays out this very thing. After five chapters of laying out the sovereign grace of God in Christ, similar to what he does in Ephesians, it just takes a little longer to do it, five chapters, just to build up to chapter 6 of Romans 6. Listen to how it speaks of our bondage before Christ and after Christ. This is a great benefit of our salvation. In Romans 6, what shall we say then in light of all that grace he's been speaking of? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, Paul says. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Now that you're in Christ, you have the power to say no to it. You don't have to run to it anymore. You won't run to it anymore when you're in him. Now, you may struggle against it. It'll come chasing you, and you'll look back from time to time, but you're not going to run to it. How can we do that now that we are in Christ, Paul says? For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. He's making our full identity wrapped up in the person of Jesus. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Jesus died to set us free from slavery to sin. You say, I'm still struggling with sin. 
It's not talking about the struggle we have in this life. It's, you're not a slave to it, though. By God's power, you can walk away from it. Romans 6, verse 11, So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, Christians, is what he's saying, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Now that you're a Christian, don't present yourself, your members means your body, all the parts that make you up. Don't present them to sin any longer. Now that you're in Christ, you don't have to any longer. Now you can walk away from it. But present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. When we are saved from God's wrath by Christ, we are placed into union with Jesus. This gives us power to say no to Satan. It saves us from Satan's total bondage. This might have been the linchpin in the life of Martin Luther and his understanding of the Bible's teaching about grace. He was writing to oppose a Roman Catholic theologian named Erasmus, his view of grace, which was weak. It, it, it missed this whole point. Really, Luther just hearkened back to Augustine's view of grace when he wrote The Bondage of the Will. Listen to what Luther says. It obviously follows that whatever is flesh is ungodly under God's wrath and a stranger to his kingdom. And if it is a stranger to God's kingdom and spirit, it follows of necessity that it is under the kingdom and the spirit of Satan. For there's no middle kingdom between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, which are ever at war with each other. He understood what it meant that we would be saved from the bondage of sin. Yes, we still struggle against Satan. He's slinging arrows at us, but we're no longer his slave. We have power for victory where we did not have it before. We were total slaves. We're no longer under that same level of bondage. Take the helmet of salvation. There's another benefit to salvation that fends off the devil's lies. And some of these lies that he might say at this point, you do not belong to God. You have no one that cares about you. God does not love you. You are an orphan. Taking the helmet of salvation also means knowing your status as an adopted child of God. In Ephesians 1, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption. In Ephesians chapter 2, you were by nature children of wrath. Who, are, who is your parent? Wrath and the devil. Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he seated us in the heavenly places with Christ. We do belong. We're saved into a forever or an eternal family. We are secure against becoming spiritual orphans. We are saved from orphanhood, so to speak. We are saved into an inheritance. We gain a spot in God's family where we are kept safe. It matters not what your biological situation is. In Christ, you are God's child. We gain a spot in God's family. We're kept there securely. As God's children, we're safe from losing our status. John Murray, the great theologian at Westminster Seminary, wrote, Adoption, as the term clearly implies, is an act of transfer from an alien family to the family of God himself. This is surely the apex of grace and privilege, Murray says. We would not dare to conceive of such a grace 
far less to claim it apart from God's own revelation and assurance. We couldn't make this up. He says it staggers imagination because of its amazing condescension and love. Paul, once again, in writing to the Romans in chapter 8, accents this in the most vivid way in all the Bible. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. We're in Christ and we receive adoption, salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. There's yet one more benefit that I would draw your attention to. Another benefit of salvation is our future salvation, our future glory with Christ that will last the vast majority. It's ironic that I would spend all this time in the sermon, three-fourths of it, spending on the part that will take the least amount of time because you're going to live forever somewhere. And if you're in Christ, it will be in glory. And this is our hope of salvation, final salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, as I mentioned earlier, I repeat now, Paul uses the same metaphor, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul wrote, we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, it's true, we're degrading, that's what happens to us physically, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For what? What is it being renewed for? For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Can't even put into words, Paul says. It's beyond compare. There's no metaphor I have for this future. I can give you the armor of God for here and now, but I can't give you a metaphor for what's to come. In 1 Thessalonians, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers. He was talking to people who had lost loved ones. They were relatively, relatively new believers. They didn't know what happened to them. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The future glory that awaits, the hope of glory, as it says in Scripture, this keeps us going. This is what makes us recognize the purpose of our life today. Future salvation secured. We have a present life that will last into eternity, saved from the eternal punishment that we should have received, saved to eternal life, a glorious eternal life. This is what made the apostle Peter say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. An inheritance, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. What a difference in Peter, the man who basically could not stand up to a teenage girl around a fire the night of Jesus' betrayal. And now he's saying, you have an inheritance waiting and it's worth dying for, as he did. Paul wrote to the Colossians, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What's the mystery? Christ in you. The hope of glory, that which is to come, salvation. 
In Ephesians 1, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Resurrection glory. In 1 Corinthians 15, probably the greatest passage on this future hope we have in all the Bible. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We won't all sleep. Some will be changed. For this perishable body will put on imperishable. The mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death swallowed up in victory. Where's your victory? Where's your sting, death? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. Therefore, in light of the future victory, therefore, in light of what Christ has purchased for us in his resurrection, Therefore, in light of what you are guaranteed because of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul, take the helmet of salvation. What is he saying? He's saying, in light of Christ in you, be immovable, be steadfast, be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Take the helmet of salvation. The great Princeton theologian Charles Hodge said, that which adorns and protects the Christian, which enables him or her to uphold their head with confidence and joy, is the fact that they are saved. So when Paul says, take up the helmet of salvation, he's saying, remember, know, understand in your mind that you are saved, that you are justified, that you are being sanctified, that you will be glorified. You are safely in the arms of Christ. Taking up the the helmet of salvation is the knowledge and the understanding of the assurance of our salvation. Take up the helmet of salvation. Our confession does a tremendous job capturing the whole of the Bible's teaching. It's it's a lot to say, I realize. I just gave you a fraction of all that's said in the Bible about God's salvation. But if you look in your insert, you'll see at the bottom of it, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 18, uh, section 2. What a tremendous job it does in capturing this assurance of salvation. This section says, "This this certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion, grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. We sang earlier, and I close. So spirit come, put strength in every stride, give grace for every hurdle, that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. As saints of old line the way, retelling triumphs of his grace, we hear their calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. Take the helmet of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you for the fullness of our salvation in Christ. Amen.